I think it's actually very important to be aware that there are many sources of time and there are many ways to measure time and not to simply think about the clock or the calendar as the only measures and the only arbiters of time. Imagine a world in which time is not kept by a single authority. If you drive from your hometown to one a few hours away, noon is slightly different and tied to the local experience of when the sun peaks. Time would be less precise and more driven by the moon, the stars, the sun, and even perhaps the behavior of animals. We all live in a world in which time is centrally determined and incredibly accurate and precise, but time was not always that way. Join us as we explore the history of time and its evolution into the thing we know today. This is Riches in Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. Alexis McCrossan is a professor of history at Southern Methodist University. She has a PhD in history from Harvard University and has written extensively on several topics, but particularly on time and timepieces. Her work has received much acclaim, including a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship and a Center for Presidential History grant. And in 2013, she published a book called Marking Modern Times, a history of clocks, watches, and other timekeepers in American life. You can learn more about Alexis and her work by Googling Alexis McCrossin, that's M-C-C-R-O-S-S-E-N, or you can visit the hilariously long URL www.smu.edu slash deadman slash academics slash departments slash history slash people slash faculty staff slash Alexis M. <laughs> Alexis, thank you so much for joining. I've really been looking forward to the conversation. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Alex. Thank you. You know, time, as I was thinking about it, is is something that pervades everything. I mean, it, it it underpins all the study of history. When did such and such a thing happen? What year? What what time of day was the battle, et cetera? But even though time is is entirely pervasive in history, I've really very rarely seen or heard of it uh, as something that's written about in and of itself. And so I'm I'm curious first. How did you come to study and write about time and timekeeping and timepieces as a subject? Oh, well, I, when I was in graduate school, I was looking around for a dissertation topic. And one of the things that interested me, I was in an interdisciplinary program called History of American Civilization. So we were expected to sort of work across disciplines. And I've always been a historian and historical in my thinking, um, but I was also quite interested in sociology, anthropology, and the ways that those disciplines look at the structures and institutions that guide different communities in terms of their decisions about many aspects of daily life. And I began to try to think about, historically speaking, why did Americans choose to spend their time in particular kinds of ways? And did that arise simply out of ideas about the right uses of time, about when you should do things you should do? You should work on Mondays and you should go to church on Sundays and you should party on Fridays, watch football on Saturdays. Was it, was it just ideas or were there, were there laws, were there institutions, or even did timekeepers themselves, calendars or watches, 
help to shape our daily lives. And as I began to think about that, the place that made the most sense to investigate this question as a historian was to look at the calendar and in particular to look at Sunday. By the time I was in graduate school, Sunday was a pretty much a wide open day, although you still couldn't buy liquor on Sundays, right? Package stores were closed. There were still certain things that Sunday laws applied to. But if we look back in time, a Sunday had been a very, very closed day. There were many different laws and expectations about what people could and couldn't do. So I chose Sunday as my dissertation topic, the day of the week. The Sabbath, of course, comes into that, a meaning for that day of the week. And that was an enormously satisfying and, and interesting and expansive topic. I turned it into a book. And as I was finishing up that book, I began to think more and more about clock time. And I began to think about, well, how is it that Americans came to live by the clock? When did that happen? Clocks haven't always been there. When did that happen and how? And I thought that that would be an easy question to answer. I actually thought that somebody surely had answered it. And when I began to look um, at the scholarly literature, there wasn't a whole lot that had been said about it. There were a few very good books. Your audience might be um, familiar with a book titled A Revolution in Time by an economic historian that looked at the history of clock and watch making over uh, centuries and centuries around the world. So I began to look at it, and the more I looked at it, the more fascinating it became. And so here I am. It's one of those things that you kind of start pulling the onion back and you start thinking, wow, that layer is interesting and that one, and I hadn't thought of that. And wow, that's a, a weird thing that I hadn't paid attention to before. It's a very non-obvious part of history. And I find that fascinating. And the thing is, is that the more you start to look at it, the book I was referring to is by David S. Landa's Revolution in Time. And the more you begin to look at it, actually, the more you find that there are historians who have, they've just done so within certain kinds of silos. So there's a whole scholarship about timekeeping in ancient Greece, about timekeeping in ancient China. And it's not just about clocks, right? Because timekeeping can be about knowing when to plant right, about knowing when to observe certain rituals. I mean, all of human life is predicated on different kinds of timekeeping of various sorts. So once we move beyond just thinking of clocks as the source of time and as the arbiter of time, the topic becomes much deeper and much more interesting. And then clocks themselves begin, once you really start to look at them, they become totally problematic and deep and tantalizing in a way. It goes without saying these days that, for instance, when, when we were meeting here today, uh, we set up a time, we both show up, and there's no question as to, is my clock different from your clock? We know we're on the same clock. And we all live in a world in which centralized timekeeping authority exists. And I, I never would have said it that way until I, I read through your work. But prior to this centralized timekeeping era, we, we had something I think you write about as being localized timekeeping authority. We're super familiar with what centralized is, but, but what did it look like when timekeeping was localized? It's kind of neat in a way, because right when, when you said centralized timekeeping authority, I, I suspect that the vast majority of your listeners, of our listeners, understood what, what you meant, but couldn't actually identify who the centralized timekeeping authority is, like who actually is in charge. I just know my iPhone says exactly the same time as anybody else's iPhone. Right. 
And that, I mean, and that's kind of all we need to know. Um, yeah. And as long as we all agree that this moment, my, the clock on my computer monitor says a 124, as long as we all agree on that, we're fine. I mean, because time, the, the, the kind of clock time is, is, a, is a kind of a convention, right? That allows you and I to establish an abstract measure that we can both keep independently that allows us to come together. So now when we had the localized timekeeping authorities in communities, like a, a, let's say a small town, um, let's just choose Greenville, Texas. In that community, there might have been a small factory that had a bell and that bell might have called people to work, right? So that would be a, a time of occasion, right? So that when the bell rings, we know it's time to start walking to the factory gates. Or when the church bell rings, it wasn't when the church services started. The bell would ring the first time to let everybody know, you better start getting here. Then it would ring the second time to say, you ought to be here, church is going to start. Or, you ought to be here, work is starting. Now, in, in these small communities, depending on who had the most power, and usually that would have been translated into wealth, who could afford to rig a bell or have even better clock faces maybe on the, on the facade of the factory, on the tower of the church. And then those clock faces would have allowed you and I as residents of the town, then we could have looked to the clock faces and figured out, oh, I've got 10 more minutes before I need to get to work. We're internalizing time at that point. So churches, factories, they might have been the authority for the time. In many cases, they weren't. In many cases, it would have been the local jeweler who would have been in charge of the upkeep of people's clocks. The grandfather clock that we know of today, which used to be called a tall case clock, needed to be wound every eight days by some sort of tradesman. And the jeweler also would have repaired watches. And he would have kept the time. He would have had, was a regulator, which is a more precise and accurate clock. If he were connected by telegraph to an astronomical observatory, he could have received a time signal that the astronomers had sort of determined this is precisely the time at our longitudinal location. But that piece of it, I assume, wouldn't even come till the late 1800s, perhaps? The, the telegraph, I mean? The time services, so telegraphs introduced in 1844, first astronomical observatories are built in the 1840s. They start telegraphing the time, but only to a few recipients, mainly like in Boston and New York City. And then after the 1870s, in combination with Western Union, the, at the U.S. Naval Observatory begins to offer a time service where, where for a fee you could receive the telegraph, the true time. Um, and then you would have to do some calculations based on your longitude, right, your place on the earth, so as to determine the time. And then the jeweler might have ha had his most accurate clock in his window of his store or even have a street clock. They called them post clocks outside of his office with the faces so that the men of the town and some of the women would go and look at the clock and reset their pocket watches. And all of this, of course, would be that local time, Greenville. So not the town adjacent to Greenville, not Fort Worth, because every town's time would have been a little bit different based on its longitude, on where it was located on the face of the earth. And that's really based on where the sun is 
Right. At the meridian, at the highest point, um, at, at its highest point in the day, what typically we call noon. And so back then, Greenville, Dallas, Fort Worth, not to mention Lubbock out in West Texas, those all would have had slightly different noons, right? Exactly. And then even that being said, like, let's just say here in Dallas, um, I've, there's a great jeweler. He has, he's connected to the U.S. Naval Observatory's time service. He's getting accurate time. He has a really good regulator. But for whatever reason, he may actually, his clock may not actually be set to the true noon of Dallas. But if the townspeople of Dallas agreed that that jeweler's time was the local standard, then we would have followed it anyway. It really wouldn't matter if his time was five minutes slower or faster than true noon. Yeah, it sounds like time and your sense of time, a few things emerge. One, everyone's conception of being on time was a lot less precise than it is these days. It sounds like, you know, the church bell rings or the factory bell rings, and it's like, well, I better start heading that way. It's not like, well, be here at 9 a.m. sharp. And the other thing I'm guessing here, but it sounds like a lot of the trappings of timekeeping were quite expensive. I, I'm guessing that farmers in rural areas likely didn't have the pocket watch or the grandfather watch or certainly a connection to the naval station to, to tell time. Am I right there? Absolutely. And I mean, okay, yes, you are right. The trappings of ascertaining the true time, that is what your exact time is based on the longitude, where the sun is in the sky, those were those were for the very few and the very privileged, not only would they needed to have the the instruments and the tools, they would have had to have had the knowledge about how to use them. And so this is why, you know, it's astronomical observatories and some scientists, particularly scientists concerned with like meteorology, because let's say if we wanted to track the course of a storm, I would need to know a kind of precise measure of time that could line up with your precise measure of time oh, in New Orleans. If you were in New Orleans and the storm were heading toward Dallas, as meteorologists, we would need to have an agreed upon measure so that we could actually track the storm. So you have these few entities who have the tools, who have the knowledge, and then who have the stakes, right, and precision timekeeping. Now, interestingly, farmers and rural areas who didn't necessarily need to know what true noon in Dallas was, they still were very interested in timekeeping. So there's a profusion of uh, clocks and watches across the United States in the antebellum era, long before the telegraph, um, long before any kind of standardized time or any way of disseminating the time. Those tools were so fascinating to people and were kind of a measure of aspiration, of using time efficiently, of being coordinated with others. I always think of it as like when the cell phones first came out, I got my first cell phone and I was so excited about it. And I was driving from Dallas all the way to Los Angeles. And for much of my drive, I had no connectivity. It's almost impossible to imagine now, right? Right. I mean, it was it was almost useless, right? And there were places even for the first five years or so that I had my cell phone, like Taos, New Mexico. I there, there was cell phone service in Taos, but it was through Verizon and I was on the AT&T. And therefore, I just didn't have a network. But I didn't get rid of my cell phone. I didn't say, oh, the cell phone's useless. I'm not connected to anyone. The cell phone promised me connectivity 
if the tantalizing promise of that connectivity, I didn't give up on it. Uh, and eventually, right, this technology came around and we got connectivity everywhere. So was there an emergence of an idea that people wanted this timepiece because they were being able to connect into something larger? Yeah, I think so. Nobody's ever going to know for certain why so many people bought clocks and watches for which they had no standard of time to set them to and for which there was no guarantee that their clocks or watches would be synchronized with anyone else's. So, I, I mean, it's like, why would people buy all these cell phones when they're not connected to anything? Right. The cell phone analog is really interesting. It, it, I, I buy that. But people did because there was a kind of a promise. And also clocks and watches have other, have other purposes, like a, 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 a pocket watch or a wristwatch today is also an item of jewelry. It's an item of value. A clock and a home conveyed all sorts of symbolism and messaging. It was a decorative piece of furniture um, in addition to having a utilitarian potential. So to circle all the way back to the beginning question about this local time, there are all these different local times that were at play in any one locality. Punctuality had a very different kind of texture than, say, it would today, where today punctuality is you and I both got on, on the call at one o'clock. But the texture then would have been there was a lot more latitude. People were much more patient in a way. So waiting for the stagecoach or the steamboat or for the, the preacher on a horse to arrive, it was, there was a, a much wider latitude, if you will, for when those conveyances might arrive and also when they were going to leave. I mean, we're anxious about time because we know that the train is going to leave. And if we're not there on the platform, we're going to miss the train. The train's not going to wait until everybody in town shows up to get on it. Fascinating. So from really time immemorial, I guess you might say, but certainly from the, the founding of the country, you have this environment in which depending on the longitude where you live, so the east-west direction you live, you're going to have a slightly different local noon. And then as clocks become a thing, it, it sounds to me almost like a, it's like a public service that wealthier people or, or entities provide to the town or the city as, as clocks begin to be something that is displayed in public. And, and there was a term I read in your work that was called the public clock era. And I assume that's somewhat of what we're talking about as we're into the middle 1800s. You, you alluded to the, the clock that's facing out into the town square or whatever. What is the quote unquote public clock era? What does that mean? The public clock era, I date as beginning after the Civil War and um, sort of reaching its apogee around the turn of the 20th century. And then with World War II, if actually with the Great Depression, with the 1930s, that era is over. And what characterizes this era are thousands of clocks and public spaces that are giving the time. And once we get standardized time, which you will talk about in the 1880s, those clocks begin to give a standard time for that locality. And these clocks became a kind of authority for the time, and they began to organize American life more and more closely. And so when I say thousands of clocks, I literally mean tower clocks on churches, on courthouses, on city halls in particular. So a claim to fame of the city hall is how big, how high its tower is, how wide are its faces. 
These public clocks were also at street level, so you would have the post clocks with the kind of four faces on the on the sidewalks. You would have bracket clocks hanging off of buildings on brackets, particularly on prominent street corners. Every railroad station would have innumerable clocks showing the time. And then, of course, schools had clocks and factories did. So the time was kind of everywhere and readily seen by the man on the street, by the the student in the playground, by the woman in the department store. And so this started to bring Americans closer and closer together into a life under the clock, right? And, And a life living through clock time. Now, the era begins in part after the Civil War because there's a great interest in timekeeping and in synchronizing time that develops partially due to the railroads, due to the growth of cities, and then enabled by two prominent clock manufacturers, um, Seth Thomas and E. Howard, who had sort of perfected these timekeeping mechanisms for very large clocks. You can imagine if you have, say, the Philadelphia City Hall, which the tower rises more than 300 feet, The clockwork mechanism is in the basement of the city hall, but the 25-foot wide dials are at the very top of that tower. So there was a lot of engineering that was involved in getting the impulse from the clock. The impulse is what moves the hands. So they also became kind of feats of engineering, expressions of modernity. In addition to all of these clocks, there are also something called time balls which were these large orbs that were placed on top of poles on prominent buildings and cities, preferably near a court. And at noon, an astronomical observatory would send an impulse through the telegraph that, okay, it's true noon. And then the ball would start to slide down the pole so that people could see it from many, many blocks away and set their pocket watch. I've seen those on old buildings and I, I never knew what they were. And it kind of reminds me of the New York City ball drop at the, the turn of the year. Exactly. And that that actually had its origins. That was a time ball that they adapted to uh, signaling instead of noon, signaling midnight and the arrival of a new year. So these were these were everywhere. And then the public clock era ends for a number of different reasons, but it largely ends when we get other, more reliable means of disseminating the time. And these were radio, right? So commercial radio debuts in the early 1920s. And is that just as simple as somebody announcing on the radio saying it's it's now 12 p.m.? Right. It's tw- And you still hear this today. If you listen to the BBC at the top of the hour, they have that funny little sound. And then they say it's, you know, 12 GMT or what have you. So the radio became a much more efficient way of disseminating the correct time than telephone. You may be too young, but I'm not. When I grew up, we had time and temperature and you dial a particular number on your phone and they would immediately pick up with the exact time and temperature at that moment. So you could reset the clocks in your house or your watch or what have you. And then, of course, television disseminated the time. But the necessity of these really expensive, and as you call them, public service means of disseminating the time became less and less pressing as these other kind of less expensive and more reliable ways of disseminating the time developed. It feels, as so many things on this show have, which has really been an interesting revelation to me, it, it feels like something that moved very much in lockstep with the Industrial Revolution and just the necessity to be be on time to get to the factory, 
also bred the ability to tell more accurate time in the form of better watches, et cetera, and, and, and mass production of the public clocks and so forth. It, it's an interesting self-reinforcing cycle there in the late 1800s. And even more so because one of the central things predicating industrialization is the drive for greater, greater efficiency and greater productivity. And so we can think of productivity in terms of capital, in terms of labor, in terms of materials. But we also began in the 19th century to think about productivity in terms of time. And these timekeeping mechanisms then become a way of creating greater synchronization and coordination and therefore allowing for greater productivity for each hour of the day. But you needed this kind of almost abstract system that would allow large bodies of people, capital, goods to move together in the most efficient manner. So you can no longer have a train roll into town and just sort of wait around until the people got on and the, the, the farm goods were loaded and the manufactured goods were unloaded. You needed to have a system to get that train in and out of there as fast as possible. You know what that makes me think of, which is, is fascinating, is time is in many ways the most powerful network effect around. Yep. Where the more people are following this time, this precise time, the more people need to follow it because there's this network effect that's created. And to your point, if 50% of your workforce is showing up 20 minutes after the hour because that's about the right time, that doesn't really work. You can't open the factory. You need everybody there on the hour. But I've never thought of time as a network effect, but it is. We all comply. It's a very powerful network effect. Oh, completely. And it allows for the mass coordination, right? A labor force, train passengers, what have you. But it also allows the individual greater autonomy. So I know that I have to be at the office at nine on the dot and I need to pick up the child from daycare at six on the dot. But within those very precise and actually very powerfully dominating time moments, I can kind of coordinate my own time. I can figure out the shortcut to the daycare so that I get there faster than any of my peers might because I've got this great shortcut. Or I can figure out that I would rather spend an hour walking to work, so I'm going to take a little more time. So within the system, there's greater individual autonomy, even as we're becoming more and more tightly networked and synchronized. So I think it's kind of a paradox because a lot of scholars have liked to think about clocks and clock time as a very oppressive force, right? That it's removed our autonomy, our agency. We're living by the clock. We're therefore no, no longer agents. But I like to think of it as actually enhancing my autonomy and my agency. Because and now that I no longer just respond to time signals, now that I can estimate how long, what duration might be, now that I'm in charge of keeping my time for myself, even if it's a standardized moment in time, I have so much more freedom. It's this idea of you define the field of play and then you can do what you want on that field as opposed to, like you said, just reacting to signals, people throwing the time ball or the, the bell ring at you or whatever. Right. I mean, remember when you were a kid on the playground and there's the recess bell? You never quite know when it's going to ring. <laughs> you never know when it's because you're not, you haven't yet learned how to marshal your time. So you can't figure out how to get that full game of tetherball in. Right. Or whatever it is. Right. Um, and then as you grow older, you start to marshal your own time. You touched on this idea and there was a line that I, I read in one of your books that I, I found to be very well put and fascinating. But you, you've touched on the idea we're here in the mid 1800s when 
a lot of th things start coming together. You start having more widely distributed timepieces, more accurate and precise centralized time. But the railroad, that was something that so jumped out to me. And the line you wrote was, when it took a long time to traverse even small distances, the differences in time between places did not much matter. And I never thought of it in this this way, but if you're getting on a horse and buggy and you're going from Dallas to Greenville in the early 1800s to an earlier point, that takes you a very long time. There aren't great roads. It's slow. You have to feed the horse along the way or whatever. Nowadays, it's an hour drive and it's easy. And as time and space and distance became closer and faster with the advent of the railroad, and this is my words, but I'm, I'm curious your thoughts. There's maybe the most important date in the history of time. And again, my words, so so call me on it if, if I'm wrong here, but it was November 18, 1883. That's when this thing called standard railway time came into effect. When around the world, correct me if I'm wrong, there was a noon that everybody synchronized to, and that became the standard. Is that more or less how it happened? Yes and no. It was not around the world. Great Britain, railway time or standard, actually railway time and standard time are two different things, but standard time had been introduced in the 1850s. So Great Britain had standardized its time earlier. There were movements in Europe, and I don't remember the exact years that they standardized their time. And the rest of the world standardized timekeeping came much later than 1883. So this was an American effort and Canada did it. Canada joined in but it was around the same time. But it was, it was an American effort that was informed by what was happening in Europe, in particular in Great Britain. So yeah, November 18th, 1883, there had been about 70 different local times in operation in the late 1870s and 1880s that railroads were following. So a railroad has its headquarters and let's say it was a railroad that ran from Chicago to Detroit. The railroad would have been headquartered in Chicago, and it would have followed Chicago time all the way to Detroit. Now, this poses a lot of complications for the residents in Detroit who may not know what time it was in Chicago and therefore would have had trouble reading the schedule. When is this train going to arrive from Chicago or for all the stations along the way? And there were many, many, many different railroads operating in the United States at this time. And they're all following their own time. And some of them agreed, which is why we got down to 70. But it was very hard for them to coordinate the usage of the tracks. Not only the usage of the tracks, if they were going to be sharing a track, but then also to coordinate, say, connections. Because it was just a mathematical nightmare to try to translate Chicago time in Detroit to, let's say, a train was also arriving in Detroit from uh, Cincinnati. Um, you can just imagine how your head would hurt. And very prone to errors, I would imagine. Right. Tons of errors. And so there had been annually a railroad convention of the managers of the railroads where they would get together and try to make sense of all of their different timetables and different time standards. And this was increasingly becoming frustrating. And so the general secretary of this railroad convention, his name was William F. Allen, he decided that he wanted to standardize railroad time. And he wanted to create a zone system, which was what, what had been introduced by Great Britain 
uh, and the zone system would be ba based on the longitude and it would be based on the prime meridian being in Greenwich. So that would be zero. And then when you get to the eastern seaboard of the United States, the, the prime meridian, um, it, it, well, we, he set it to 75 was the longitude. And so that would have been seven hours later than GMT. And then each zone would have accounted for 15 degrees of longitude, which equals one hour of time. So everybody would have got on the same hour. So it's the top of the hour everywhere. And then it's two o'clock in central zone. It's three o'clock in the eastern zone, one in mountain and noon in the Pacific. And so th this is time zones or a precursor to time zones? Yeah. So this is the same time zones that we have today, actually. And they're actually set to the same meridian. So it's 75th, 90th, 105th, 115th. How did they choose those meridians? Rounding up. New York is at the 74th meridian and um, Boston is at the 71st. And uh, I don't remember wh where D.C. is, but they wanted all in Philadelphia. They wanted all of those cities to be on the same meridian. And 75 was kind of the 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 mean they also wanted to choose a meridian that was sort of in the middle of the zone. So the idea, the idea of our clocks is that they help us live our days so that when my clock shows noon, the sun should be somewhere at the top of the sky. And when my clock shows 6 p.m., it should be somewhere near the horizon. It just says when it shows 6 or 7 a.m., it should be somewhere near the horizon as well, right? The eastern horizon. So the clocks should be an approximation of our natural day. And so when they chose the 75th meridian or the 115th and so on, they tried to choose it so that, that all of the people living in that zone would have a clock time that was close to the natural day. So even if the sun is really at the top of the sky at 12.15 by true time, it's still basically noon. For us, So we're still having a biological and natural experience of time that corresponds with the clock. And we all know what it's like. When I lived in Boston, it was very disconcerting that in the depths of the winter, the clock would show 3.30 or 4. And it's dark. Yeah. Yeah. And I just... I grew up in New Mexico, and that, that just was never the case. The day, first of all, the day is just longer in New Mexico. But we, that was just, I, I never had the experience of it being dark in the middle, in the middle of the afternoon or those places where it's dark very late into the morning. It's disconcerting. Well, and also, I, I guess if you're on the eastern end of a time zone, and this is kind of what we're touching on, you, you get a pretty early sunset, particularly when the time changes like we're going through. And I've been in Boston at those very dark afternoons. It is, it's disconcerting to say the least. It, it's, it's saddening, I might even say. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I mean, and there is an effect, you know, they, whatever, they're sad, right? But there's, is an effect on your body when your time clock is out of sync with the natural clock. So they tried to choose these meridians to kind of create uniformity, synchronicity, and to try to not shirk the cities that were too far to the east or the west. So Detroit, for example, was it on the western edge of the eastern zone or on the eastern edge of the central zone? I don't remember, but Detroit is right on the edge of the two zones. And as a consequence, the city of Detroit actually rejected standard time. Um, the city council, the mayor said, this just isn't going to work for us. 
Um, and there was, you know, a, a few years of, of real uh, stress over that. And there were a few localities that rejected it. But for the most part, it was accepted. It wasn't a government mandate. The federal government didn't have anything to do with time zones. Did it at some point step in and put that into law? Eventually, at first, city councils approved it. So the Boston City Council, the New York City Council said, okay, we're going to, now city time is going to be the 75th, you know, uh, we're going to follow standard time. And the, the smaller towns didn't really, they just ended up doing it anyway. And then eventually during World War II, when the U.S. government introduced daylight savings as a fuel saving measure, then they also put the stamp of approval on standard time zones as well. So it, it kind of comes very late. It's a fait accompli by that point. It was the railroad industry needing time that synced up across a very wide area so that you had people able to get on the train at the right time, pick up relatives and goods at the right time. I, I can totally see why they would need that standard because suddenly you have these things that are barreling down the tracks very fast, much faster than a horse and buggy would have been previously. And so railroad industry drives this standardization of time in the U.S. And it sounds like it rolled out fairly smoothly. I mean, maybe wasn't inculcated into law until the uh, 1940s, but uh, was, was pretty smooth, some kicking and screaming from Detroit. What is not obvious there, and then you touch on this in your work, and I think it's fascinating, is the, the power inherent in that. The railroads made this decision. The country more or less went along with it fairly quickly. And you had millions of people who were changing their behavior in slight ways to comply with that. And I don't mean to imply that that was nefarious at all, but it was a good thing, I think, in retrospect. But that was a lot of people marching to a tune suddenly. And then when you think about it on, on some of the other examples that you write about, you write about China moving to one time zone in 1949, uh, Dmitry Medvedev in Russia making daylight saving time permanent, uh, eliminating, just getting rid of two time zones in Russia in 2011. When you start thinking about it, there's actually a lot of political power tied up in time. I was curious to hear more about that. How, how do you view that political power and time as being related? Well, that is a really interesting question, and it, and it speaks to a lot of theoretical issues. There's a very good scholarly literature about law and the time and about the power of the state, that is the centralized government, to adjudicate the right use of time, but also to set itself up as the owner of time. So if we think about particularly criminal proceedings where people's lives can be taken away or where people's mundane time can be uh, taken away by imprisoning them, that's a very powerful claim that the state makes and with regards to its ownership of time. So as long as we're law-abiding citizens, then we can stay out of the courthouse. So there's a lot of theoretical material on that. But then even on the more kind of simple everyday level, if we think about the ways that, oh, for instance, opening and closing hours, the kind of scheduling, China and Russia are very good examples, that the power of a centralized authority to say what time it is, even when that time might be out of complete variance with one's natural experience. So to, to live in a part of Russia where the clock says it's 11 o'clock in the morning, but the sun hasn't risen yet, is to daily experience the power of a centralized government in Moscow 
Now, there are probably many different ways, and I haven't read studies about this, about how local communities continue to follow their own time. But when you have to get on a business call at 11 a.m. with Moscow, then you're getting up very, you know, what feels to be like very early in the morning. And we see this right in our globalized economy today. And we don't think of it as a power of the state when um, I have friends who do a lot of business in, in Asia and they're on our business in Europe, right? And they're on phone calls very late at night or very early in the morning or on Sundays because it's already Monday somewhere else. So that kind of fungibility of time, right, is everywhere. But you're right that that that's a function of geography, right? Australia, China, they're just very far away from us. And so the, the sun is just different, experienced in a different way there. But, but you're right. It's an interesting insight that at some point, martial power intersects with time. Right. And I don't know enough. This would be very interesting. I've never thought about this. I don't know enough about, say, America, uh, the relationship between the Pentagon and its bases all over the world. Are the commanders of those bases expected to follow D.C. time in terms of meetings or dispatches? Right. What is that? How are they coordinated? Does the Pentagon take into account what time it is around the world or are they all on a kind of army standard time? Well, it's interesting you you talk about the army. Something you said made me think about, you know, back in Roman times, say, and if, if you were leading one century and I was leading another, I would say, okay, you're going to see me attack. And then once you see a shoot an arrow in there, you go, you charge. And then cut to, I'm thinking of World War II, where they might say at 7.03 in the morning, we're going to go. And everybody just knows exactly when to go. I mean, in the military, that's a radically different state of affairs. Right. And you see this like during the Civil War, where they started to get the idea that you could use the clock to coordinate action. You could have different divisions doing, you know, we're going to we're going to invade on the ground. Can you send some cannon over us? Um, And but it's all dependent on the clocks being coordinated. But what happened in the Civil War is oftentimes their clocks weren't coordinated. So everything went haywire. But again, it was that the promise was so tantalizing. They didn't give up on it. And they just kept trying to achieve battlefield temporal coordination. But I wanted to say just really quickly about the introduction of Standard Time in the U.S. Part of the reason why it went over so smoothly is that people had been living by Standard Times and plural for a long time. So they were used to they were used to saying, oh, the Benedict, referring to the jeweler's clock, the Benedict is our standard of time, or City Hall is our standard of time. So they were used to the concept of a standard of time. The new thing was that there would be a national standard. So there was that, but also in a lot of places, both clocks and watches, they added a, a, an extra hand, and the hand one hand would show railroad time or standard time, and the other hand would show the, the local time. And so this was sort of like a transition period for about 10 years where people were still trying to live by their local time and keep in mind what the railroad time was. And then eventually they just all came to live by the sta- railroad standard time. So that's a really interesting anecdote that, that gets at this fascinating part of the, the history of time that you've written about. And it reminded me, I don't know if you've heard of this concept. I've heard of it in regards to, I think there's a Shakespearean play where they talk about second sleep. There's this kind of secret idea, you know, very hard to discern idea that prior to electric lighting, we used to go to sleep and then wake up in the middle of the night and then take our second sleep. And Shakespeare mentions that I think Thomas Jefferson wrote letters about it. But 
I've read it's very hard to discern in the historical record because it was just a thing people did. It would, it would be like if you read my emails, I, I don't refer to the fact that I, oh, I'm going to bed at, at nighttime and I'm waking up in the morning. That's just something that people do. And so I'm wondering, you wrote in Marking Modern Times about the habitual, small and repetitive actions that people made for just hundreds, thousands of years, but they're they're invisible in the historical record. Nobody writes about oh, such and such a normal thing I did. Uh, you know, I went to the store at midday to buy milk and how did I know it was midday? Oh, the sun was in the middle of the sky. People don't write that way. And so how did you tease out these, these little behaviors and changes that people made as, as the idea, the concept of time was morphing? There is a really good book by A. Roger E. Kirch and the book is titled At Day's Close, Night and Times Past. And he actually looked into and started to find all sorts of fugitive evidence about that second sleep. So he looked at, for example, he looked at court records and he looked at when people testified that they heard the woman scream. And they would say, I heard the scream just after I woke up from my first sleep. So he began to sort of put together with evidence like that, the fact that, yes, indeed, there really is, a, a, it was a pattern in sleep for the vast majority of Europeans before electricity, uh, well, and before gas illumination, that they would have this sort of two nights sleep. And he also looked at people's dream books because their dream books, they would often record about, um, I had this dream before my first night's sleep or in my second night's sleep. And that kind of research that E. Kirch did, this is a great book, I highly recommend it, is really similar to the kind of research that, that I did as well. There's not an archive that you can go to. You have to be really kind of creative. So I looked at diaries and I looked at letters and I, I used a lot of keywords, so sort of terms or ideas that would allow me to kind of get inside of a, a person's experience. When might they have been likely to mention something about a clock? Well, maybe when they were traveling, maybe when they were at war. So Civil War diaries are really good, um, had all kinds of great little anecdotes. The bugler in the army, his clock was wrong and it woke him up at one in the morning and he jumped out of bed and he started blowing the bugle for, you know, to wake everybody up. And then the commanding officer came and reprimanded him. And, and thus we learned about both his watch and the commanding officer's watch and this little anecdote. So there's that. And then I looked also at um, fiction. I looked at jewelers' records. So jewelers, uh, often people would bring their timepieces to them and um, the jewelers would write down how the timepiece broke or what the person said about it. So I have all these tantalizing pieces of evidence about where people carried their watches, what they were trying to do with them. I have correspondence between owners of timepieces and the manufacturers of them. Francis DuPont, who was one of the founders of the DuPont Industries, he um, was obsessed with clocks and timekeeping, and he wrote all of these really intense letters about his expectations for his clocks and how they let them down, and even describes getting so angry at a clock that he wanted an axe so he could smash it to pieces. I love that term, fugitive evidence, though. It's these kind of non-normal and, and non-obvious things, the right. court records. You mentioned with Second Sleep, the 
you know, this guy DuPont, who's just very clock focused, but I assume in, in just mass literature and in, in mass publications, there's really not much to go on when it comes to how time was thought about. Am I right? I mean, there is and there isn't. I mean, you have to start, you have to look for patterns, right? Because you're getting a lot of what what you might call anecdotes, but the anecdotes start to give you a pattern if you look closely. Like, for instance, when I mentioned about this, the adding a, another hand to a timekeeper so you could keep both local and standard time, I first discovered that because I was looking at patents. I looked in the, the U.S. patent um, records for anything to do with timekeeping. And what you see is a world in which people are imagining how to improve their timekeeping, not just in terms of how to improve a clock or a watch, but even like different kinds of ways that they wish for time to be measured. And so just looking at those patents themselves, then I went to different kinds of journals that would publicize patents. And I began to read the editorials that were written about them. And then, you know, you just keep going down the rabbit hole until, you know, you find a letter or something. It's all out there. There's so much more out there than I could have ever possibly have used. But it's not all collected, like, say, the papers of General Grant, if you wanted to write biography, and they're all in a place and you pour through them and that a different kind of hard work. You might hear Grant mention time here and there, but you have to figure out the tapestry of, of a lot of different people and how they interacted with time. Right, exactly. You know, in the, in the last part of our conversation here, I always like to try to bring it into present and, and get a better understanding for how you've seen our modern days differently through a you know, different lens, let's say, as, as you've done your research and over the course of your research. And I, I'm just curious, you, you've read more about any of us uh, on time and, and th this idea of time and timekeeping. And what do you think, I mean, looking back to the non-standard time era to now, when it's a very standardized time anywhere in the world, what do you think the implications are of, of all of us being on precisely the same time all the time, thanks to the devices that we just carry around with us all the time, you know, what, what are the implications, both good and, and bad? What do you think we've lost? Is there anything that stands out as no longer being around that existed back in the non-standard time era? It's a really interesting question because there's a tension between this precise time that we can get very wound up in so that I can get very, very wound up in rushing to make sure that I arrive at my dinner date on time. And to a degree that I might run a yellow light or I might carelessly close my front door or I might um, cut somebody off either driving or in conversation just so that I can arrive at the restaurant at 6 p.m. And that, that is very, that's unhealthy. At the university, I want my students to be on time, but I don't want them to endanger themselves or others. And I don't want them to make themselves anxious or sick about getting to class on time, as important as it is. So I do think that the clock and these standardized clocks that we have can create a lot of undue pressure that ultimately kind of just doesn't really matter. I mean, it's a sign of respect to show up on time. So for example, um, my daughter plays a sport and her coaches expect her to be 10 minutes early is on time. On time is late. 
So, I mean, there are, you know, and I'm sure in the business world, I mean, there are rules, right? You don't show up to the business meeting late if you're the subordinate. Now, if you're the boss, you, maybe you could show up late. It depends. So I do think that that creates a kind of set of pressures that perhaps are unnecessary and that, look, if there's a variance of five minutes, what, what does it really matter? On the other hand, the fact that the world is all following, we're ba- it's basically the top of the hour everywhere. At the same time, we can figure out what time it is in Japan. We can coordinate ourselves. I can know that my friends on the West Coast are still working at when it's six o'clock in Dallas. My friends are hard at work at four and I, therefore I'm going to wait to call them. And there are all kinds of benefits to a world living essentially in one time where we can we can better communicate, we can better strategize, we can better experience things together. Uh, but there is that kind of loss when we get too uptight about being in lockstep together. I was wondering, as you read, particularly the pre-mass synchronized time era uh, accounts from back then, these days, I think a lot of us say, oh, man, time really flies by these days. And I, I was curious, was there a sense that, that that wasn't as true back then, that time passed differently? And I'm, I'm assuming perhaps more slowly, but maybe more quickly. But did you ever, do you get a sense in reading these, what was the term you used, the, um, the fugitive evidence? Was, was there a different sense of the passing of time? That's a really good question. Um, There are a number of social psychologists and psychologists who study our perception of the passage of time because they think it's it's actually a psychological question. How do we perceive the passage of time? And one of the things that they argue is that as we get older, time seems to pass more quickly because we've experienced so much more time. So whereas like when you're four years old, one year is a quarter of your life. Whereas when you're 60 years old, a year is a 60th of your life. If you make it to 100, right, a year is 1% of your life. So by that measure, time passes really quickly as you get older. It seems like the years go by really, really quickly. So you have the kind of calendar time that kind of stretches out for children. Seems like an eternity in between a birthday. Whereas the daily time can really speed up very, very quickly. And, um, you know, you see this with old people that that their days seem to stretch out forever. And part of it is, is that unfortunately, in many very old people's lives, there's not a lot in each day. Whereas in, in young children's lives, the days are very packed or in a, in a, at the sort of the height of one's career, your day just might go by so quickly because there's just so much action. So in that sense, I can't really reflect on whether people in the past thought time went by quickly or slowly by the same measures that we're talking about now. They also had a different understanding of, not all of them, but of what time meant. And what do you mean there? Well, while there are many religiously observant Americans today who believe heartily in an afterlife, there are fewer today. And even those who believe in an afterlife are also very focused on their time here on earth. And in the past, there were many unchurched people too, but there was a stronger sense that the time on earth was just prelude to what came after. 
and that that's really what one should always have one's eye on. And so you really weren't supposed to pay a whole lot of attention to the time on earth, except for to try to use it as well as you possibly could. And the use being toward your salvation, uh, rather than toward amassing earthly wealth or pleasure or, you know, greater connectivity with others ever. And so in that sense, when they said time moves very swiftly, right, which might be something that we say today in different words, what they meant was, you better be careful, you better be ready when your time comes. Because all the time that you think you have right now to get ready, it could be over in an instant. That's interesting. A very different driver for thinking that time moves quickly. Yeah, exactly. But that would be a really interesting historical question to research. I'm sure that one could, and it would actually allow one to think a lot more about the meanings that people have attributed to time and to the passage of time. We'll just have to wait for your next book on time. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> this has been a really fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And my, my final question I like to ask all my guests to tie things together, if you will, is what have you learned in, in your case about the, the study of time, or I should say in the course of, of your study about time and timekeeping that you think can, can be applied to today's world? Well, that's a very good question. I think it's actually very important to be aware that there are many sources of time and there are many ways to measure time and not to simply think about the clock or the calendar as the only measures and the only arbiters of time. So to think about natural time, for example. So don't miss out on a sunset or a sunrise because you always get up at seven and always go to bed at 10 or what, whatever, however it is that you're living by your clock, make sure that you also are looking at other measures of time as well, or by your calendar, you know, don't, don't miss out on some of the more subtle moments and passages of, of time and um, say the life cycle of a child or of a pet even, or of a tree in your yard to be more attentive to the kind of ebb and flow of time in our world and allow the clock and the calendar to be a tool to help you gain as much meaning and depth in your life. But don't let those two things be the only measures. Yeah, that's profound. I mean, in a lot of ways, you could look at the history of time and timekeeping as a movement away from natural timekeeping to mechanized timekeeping, which is what we all do these days. Right. And you sort of lose track of your body. There are some biologists who are beginning to look at chronobiology and how our bodies are, are timekeeping mechanisms. They have all these sort of regular cycles and not just the female cycles, but like in terms of cell biology, you know, because we're so focused on clocks and calendars, we sometimes we're not listening to the art, these other timekeepers, even within our own bodies. Well, Professor Alexis McCrossin of SMU, thank you so much. This has really been a, a fun conversation. I appreciate all your time. And for everyone listening to learn more about Alexis and her work, just Google Alexis, A-L-E-X-I-S, McCrossin, M-C-C-R-O-S-S-E-N. You'll find her right there on, on page one. But thank you. I really appreciate all the time. Thank you so much, Alex. I really enjoyed it. This has been a production of Riches and Power, hosted by Alex Dubay, edited by Sean Dooley. Copyright 2023 by Wesley Capital, LLC. 